Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We are in Genesis chapter 23. Here's our big idea this morning. As sojourners, we have nothing but the promises of God. As sojourners, we have nothing but the promises of God. And, and particularly as our story unfolds this morning about Abraham bearing his wife, uh, Sarah, we're going to see this kind of breakdown in, in three different sections. In verses 1 through 9 of our chapter, we're going to see that Abraham asks the Hittites to, uh, for land to bury Sarah. Uh, and then he's going to specifically ask Ephron in verses 10 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 20, we're going to kind of see the denouement of all this. Abraham buries Sam, Sarah in the promised land. So this morning, we won't really want to dig into this. We were at a community group the other night, and we're going... What in the world are we going to do with this passage? Talking about burying somebody, you know, there's this like bartering thing that's going on in the middle. What do we do with this? Well, I really think that God wants to focus us into this identity of how Abraham describes himself as a sojourner and a foreigner. And I want to pull out that concept and talk about what we see from the life of Abraham. I want to pray one more time that God directs our time. Lord, we ask again, speak. Your servants are here to listen to your word. Allow us to hear again from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 23 read like this. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me. Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. See, as this passage kind of starts, as we continue unfolding the story of Abraham, we come to this point where Sarah dies. And Abraham is mourning for Sarah in verses 1 and 2. And when we get into verse 2, it tells us about the, the details of her death. She was in Hebron. And you're saying, what in the world is Hebron? The author, uh, if we look at our passage this morning, he identifies the the location of Hebron in verse 2 and then again in verse 19. It's obviously, it starts and ends the passage. It's very important to the narrative of what's being stated here. Hebron is the city in the land of Canaan and it's part of God's 
promise. In fact, if we were to go back to uh, Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, God calls upon Abraham to say, look north and look south and look east and look west. All of this land I'm going to give to you. And so search it out. Go and seek out all of its corners. And so what happens in verse 18 of chapter 13 is Abraham moved his tent and came and settled at the Oaks of Mamre. That's in this place called Hebron uh, in Canaan. And so that's where Sarah dies. And this is where Abram wants to bury his wife. See, the upshot is this. Sarah dies in the land promised by God when they still didn't own any of the land. Right? So God had promised this land. They owned none of it. But God, or Abraham is banking on the promises of God and he wants to bury his wife there. And so when we get to verses 3 through 9, he starts the the process of negotiation. And so verse 3 tells us that he rose up. In fact, in our passage this morning, there's two repeated terms that you'll see quite often. He rises up and he bows down. And it's highlighting two different functions of of Abraham's kind of character in this passage. He's rising up in action. He's acting upon the promise of God, but he's also bowing down in humility to this person, Ephron and the Hittites. And so Abraham rises up in verses 3 and 4, and he goes to speak, and he describes himself this way in verse 4. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. That is, Abraham is from this distant country. He owns no land in the midst of their, or in their midst. He's an outsider, and he comes to them, and he's saying, I own nothing in your presence. He's an outsider because of the promise of God in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, uh, Abraham is, is off in the land of Uz, right? This, this uh, modern-day Iraq And he's there, and God calls him, and he says, hey, get up, leave the land uh, that you're from, the land of your fathers, and and go to the land that I will promise you. And so this is exactly what Abraham does. Well, what that does is it makes him alien. It makes him foreign. The promise of God makes Abraham foreign to this particular location. So what happens is Abraham makes his request And the Hittites respond with abundant generosity. In verse 6, verse 4, Abraham's described himself as a sojourner and a stranger or a foreigner. These men describe him as a prince of God. Look at verse 6. Look what what they say to him. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Just like Abimelech, back in chapter 21, recognized God's presence with Abraham, these Hittites are stopping and they say, wait a minute, you are a prince of God. You are unique. You are blessed of God uniquely. And we see this. And so they see God is with him and they offer him use of their tombs. That's what they say in verses 5 and 6. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your own dead. We should pay close attention here because what's going to happen is that there's going to be this ongoing negotiation, uh, this ongoing bartering that's going to happen. And, and what Abraham starts, he says, hey, I need to bury my dead. And they're saying, hey, that's great. Just use any of our tombs. No problem. And Abraham's going to insert himself again and say, no, that's not what I'm talking about. 
See, Abraham clarifies his request in verses 7 through 9. And specifically, as we get to verse 9, we see the conditions. He wants to pay the full price. They're offering him free usage of their tombs, but he wants to pay for a tomb outright. He wants to purchase it. Secondly, he wants this to be done in their presence. He doesn't want to get down the line and have to debate or argue of whether he owns this particular plot of land or not. And then finally, he wants to use this particular thing as a burying place or this particular piece of land. It's important that we just stop. We just think about what in the world is Abraham doing? Why does Abraham want this plot of land? I mean, he seems pretty specific, right? He's talking about this individual person, Ephron, who owns this particular field and this particular location, unavoidably, we have to assume that it's because God had promised him this land. And Abraham is acting upon that promise. Abraham is buying this land as burial ground for Sarah because he believes God will give him and his sons, his descendants, this particular plot of land. Why wasn't it okay for Abraham to use another person's burial plot? Why doesn't Abraham just kind of shove the, I'm being crass, but shove the old lady into a a tomb somewhere, right? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he have to own this plot of land? Well, he, he wants to be in control of this situation. Imagine if he uses this other lady or this other person's burial plot and he buries his wife in that plot. He has no control over what happens with his deceased wife. And so he has to have uh, ownership so that he can have control, so that he can act upon the promises of God. See, all of this this morning is, is a reminder that our mourning is otherworldly. Our mourning, the way we as Christians mourn, is different. Have you ever known this, like, that particularly Christian graves are supposed to either face east or south? Uh, this is in keeping with the promise of the resurrection, particularly it comes from a passage in Matthew that talks about how the return of Jesus will come from the east to the west, like lightning goes from the east to the west, will be universally visible. And Christians then bury their dead facing a particular direction in hope of resurrection. That's the point. We believe in resurrection. We see death through the lens of our faith in Jesus that as, that as he was raised, we hope we also will be raised in Christ. And so the burial of Sarah puts Abraham's faith in God's promise on, on full display. You know, a grave in the other areas that Abraham's lived in, whether it be Egypt or Gerar or Uz or whatever else it might be, isn't acting upon God's promises in the same way. A few months ago, actually it was probably years ago now, I was... Uh, out and about. I was at a restaurant working, and, and this gentleman came up and started to talk to me, and, and he said, um, we, he and I would interact quite often, but he said this. He said, my wife passed away last week, or my wife left me last week. That's what it was. Excuse me. My wife left me last week, but, but it's okay. I, I'm victorious in Christ. My heart broke for that individual. Yes, we are triumphant over sin and death in Christ, but there's still room for mourning, amidst Christian faith. There's still room for us to exhibit rich faithfulness in Christ and be saddened by loss. Christian triumphalism isn't in keeping with the calls of the Psalms or even in keeping with what is described here in Genesis 23. Abraham feels real pain, real loss, just like we feel real pain and real loss. 
See, there's something about the promise of God that helps us see beyond the hurt and the heartache of this present world. There's something about a God who has entered into suffering with us in the person of Christ that allows us to see suffering for what it is. I think uh, the theologian Gerhardus Voss brings this out in, in rich relief. And so there's a slide here this morning. In such trials, there can be no comfort for us so long as we stand outside weeping. If only we will take the courage to fix our gaze deliberately upon the stern countenance of grief and enter unafraid into the darkest recesses of our trouble, we shall find the terror gone because the Lord has been there before us and coming out again has left the place transfigured, making of it by the grace of his resurrection a house of life, the very gate of heaven." See, anytime we suffer, we know that that suffering has purpose, and that purpose leads us as almost by the nose to resurrection. It solidifies our faith and the promise by exercising the muscle of our belief. And the truth is this morning that what God invites Abraham to is an exercise of faith that has entanglements in this world. And so this next section, what what Abraham's going to do is he's going to carry this desire of faith into a particular interaction with these Hittite people. So look with me at verses 10 through 16. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went, uh, excuse me, of all who went in at the gate of his city, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. What's going on here? Let me ask you something. Do you enjoy a good flea market, right? You ever go and you, you find a vendor and you want to haggle over some piece of junk that exists at the flea market, right? And you start to barter with them and try to talk them down. Well, that's actually the exact opposite of what's happening here. Because what Abraham is trying to do is he's not trying to talk down Ephron in price. He's trying to actually talk Ephron into allowing him to purchase the land rather than taking it for free. See, what happens in verse 11 is Ephron offers the land for free, right? Look at verse 11 with me. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field and I give you the cave that is in it in the sights of the sons of my people and I give it to you. Bury your own dead. Ephron's saying, no, Abraham, just take it. It's just a piece of land. Just take it. Abraham responds. Abraham's kind of getting annoying almost, right? He, he offers to pay Ephron in verses 12 through 13. Once again, there he is bowing, and there he is calling Ephron to hear him in verses 12 and then in verse 13. But when he, when he gets to his answer in verse 13, Abraham objects. He says, I give the price of the field. That's, I'm going to pay for this. You ever go to lunch with someone and and the the check comes and the waitress kind of lays it down in the middle of the table and you both reach for it at the same time and you you have this tug of war on this piece of paper? Or maybe you're like me and you say, oh, you can pay for it, that's fine. 
It gets awkward, doesn't it? Well, here, Abram and Ephraim are, are, Ephraim are, are, are working on this. Who's going to pay what, and how does this work? And it gets kind of awkward. And finally, in verses 14 through 16, Ephraim, Ephraim names his price, and Abraham pays up. Ephraim names his price 400 shekels. We have no idea what that translates to. I'm sure there's somebody out there that wants to speculate on it, but I mean, this is generations ago, cultures, difference. We, we really don't know what that meant. And so Ephraim kind of had Abraham over a barrel in terms of negotiations, didn't he? Uh, Abraham's demands were pretty specific. He wanted this particular plot of land. He needed it within the next few days because his wife was already dead. Uh, His means were obvious to the community, so he had all of the wealth and resources that he needed. And so Abraham's not negotiating. Abraham's just trying to act on his faith. And so he unquestioningly unflinchingly pays what Ephron asks. But again, we have to stop here and say, why? Why doesn't Abraham try to barter a little bit? Why does Abraham demand that he buy this field? See, Abraham saw that there was potential for the promise of God to be undermined if Ephron just gave him this field. Abraham doesn't want for someone down the line to say, you know what really happened is Ephron made Abraham wealthy and gave him the land. Because Abraham wants to see God provide the land for him. And so Abraham uses the resources that God had given to him to purchase this field. It's not just that we mourn in a different way. It's not just that our mourning is otherworldly. It's that our negotiations, our interactions are otherworldly. Notice how Abraham navigates this sticky situation with a firm set of convictions. He knows exactly what he wants. He stated that in verse 9, and he's kind of unflinchingly kind of uh, guiding through this process to get exactly what he thinks faith would require. See, our presence in the world means that we will have earthly interactions. You and I are going to, we're going to have a job. We're going to have a boss. We're going to pay taxes. We're going to have neighbors. We're going to have all of those things, all of these earthly entanglements that we have to learn how to navigate through faith. Even though we ourselves might also be described as sojourners and foreigners, as we'll get to later, we also have to learn how to navigate these difficulties. Our presence in the world means that we will have earthly interactions, and those interactions show the true nature of our trust. I remember once I was at a funeral, and I was there and present with, and I found out later that individuals from the family were there stealing items from other family members' car, cars that they wanted uh, from their deceased loved one. There's a way that we show forth the things that we really love, isn't there? There's a way that we actually kind of open up and divulge the true nature of our heart and our desires and our wants. See, when we interact with our neighbors or with our boss or with our friends or whatever else it might might be, it shows forth exactly what we want and what we desire. And it's not just that we mourn like we're from another place or another world. It's that we actually interact with the priority of the gospel, with deep, deep faith in Jesus Christ. See, what verses 17 through 20 show us then is just the fallout of exactly what this interaction is. And so in verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which the cave that was in it, 
the field, excuse me, with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout it, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of, land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as its property for a burying place by the Hittites. And so all of these objectives that Abraham had in verse 9 are accomplished. He's purchased the plot of land. He has designated uh, that plot of land. They've seen it and witnessed to it that it won't be taken from him. And he's using it for the burial plot that he asked for. And in verse 20, it specifically highlights that Abraham now owns a part of Canaan. Abraham now owns this portion of the promised land, right? That's what it says in verse 20. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property. Abraham has now inherited some of the promised land, but that's just it. It's just some, right? It's just parts. In fact, Abraham's life is marked by this partial fulfillment. The the bold promise of God in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make you into a great nation. All those who bless you will be blessed. All those who curse you will be cursed. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. They come partially true in Abraham's lifetime. He's promised the nation, but he has one kid. He's promised the land, but he buys a cave with a few trees. He's promised to be a blessing to the nations, and he has some good interactions and some bad interactions. See, Abraham only sees partial fulfillment of God's promise in his lifetime. It's like God is actually training Abraham to say, there's something better coming for you. I'm training you to be a sojourner and a foreigner. I am uh, giving you an education, as it were, to trust me and delight in my promises. Hebrews 11 is this passage that is telling us of all these different men who, who have exhibited faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11... Verse 13, the author says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Isn't that where you and I are right now? Aren't you and I strangers and foreigners in this land? See, God's promise changes our interactions in the world, doesn't it? And I, I, I feel like in the last six months, I have longed more for the presence of Christ than I have ever done in my life. I feel like the pressures that we faced, whether it be through COVID or through the, uh, the social issues that are just kind of ravaging our country or the pol- political issues that are present, it makes me thirst for the lordship of Jesus to rule and reign among us, right? You feel that? See, we ourselves are sojourners and foreigners. When Peter writes his epistle, First Peter, he hits this theme time and time again. In chapter one, he writes, and in, in verse one, in chapter one, verse seventeen, he writes and, and describes his readers as exiles. They're people without house, is how the word would be translated. 
And in chapter 2, verse 11, he specifically says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter's saying to them, you are sojourners and exiles. You, you don't belong here. Sojourners and exiles sounds a lot like how Abraham described himself as a sojourner and a foreigner. In fact, Genesis 23 only makes sense if Abraham himself is an outsider, right? I mean, it only makes sense that, that Abraham would request land for his burial if he was an outsider, if, as an outsider that he would humbly request to purchase it. It's as an outsider that he would want to have witnesses to his purchase of this land. Abraham is just putting his arms around the identity that he has as a sojourner, as a foreigner, as someone who doesn't belong in this land of Canaan other than that God has promised it to him. But here, Peter says that we are also outsiders. We are sojourners and exiles. That you and I have no home if we have faith in Jesus. Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that you and I are ambassadors an ambassador is something different. It's, it's someone who lives in a particular kingdom, but he represents the designs and desires of another king in another land. We are sojourners. We are ambassadors. We are those who live outside of our place. Here's the good news is that we are in good company. Jesus himself was a stranger, wasn't he? There's this really weird interaction in Matthew chapter 8. Where a man comes to Jesus and he says, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And Jesus looks back at him and he says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? Every other animal here has somewhere. But me, I've got nowhere to go. Jesus is describing himself as homeless. Tell me, as you're thinking about it, what was Jesus' address? Was it Nazareth or Bethlehem or Jerusalem? Where did he lay? Where did he center himself out of? Now, what we see consistently throughout the Gospels is Jesus moving from town to town. In fact, he describes himself in Luke chapter 4 as, as the people of Nazareth try to restrain him there. He says in, in Luke chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well as I was sent for this purpose. My purpose is to go throughout Israel and proclaim the kingdom of God. My purpose is not to localize myself, to settle down and establish roots. My purpose is to be an exile, sojourner. But it's funny that Jesus' strangeness went beyond simply being a kind of nomad. Think about how the New Testament describes him. Actually, even the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected. John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And Jesus describes himself in John 5, he says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Jesus shares this parable in Luke chapter 20 of these wicked tenants. 
And the story goes like this. He, he describes a, a, a landowner who sublets the land out to these tenants, and they're going to oversee this vineyard that exists there. And, and what happens is the, uh, the landowner sends some of his servants out to collect the fruit that, that is being produced by this land, and these wicked tenants, they beat the servants, and they send them back to the landowner. It's a picture of, of Israel's treatment of the prophets. And eventually, Jesus, as he's telling the story, says that the landowner decided that he, they surely wouldn't mistreat his own son. And so the landowner sends the son. And, and what do they do? They kick him out of the property and they put him to death. See, Jesus himself experienced isolation. He experienced exile. He experienced the idea of being a sojourner. But Jesus was also portrayed as accepted by God. He was rejected by men, but acceptable to his Father. I want to draw your attention here to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to draw out this theme. We've been talking a lot from 1 Peter about what it is to be a sojourner, an exile. What Peter describes here is how the gospel undoes that identity. He says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? He's rejected by men. He's chosen by God. He's precious to God. Who are we? Well, through Jesus Christ, that's what's stated at the end of verse 5, we're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we become a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a spiritual sacrifice. Think about how the temple operated. Jesus is, is now making us priest, sacrifice, temple, All of those things summed up in the gospel so that now you and I who are aliens and and foreigners have been brought together into something that is stacked up in such a way that it pleases God, that we ourselves would be the spiritual sacrifice that honors Jesus Christ. He took all of us that were meandering through the world, separated, foreigners, and, and lost, and he's brought us together into something that brings honor and glory to him. See, what we see here in Genesis chapter 23 is we see a man who puts his arms around this identity of of what it means to be a sojourner, to be a foreigner. And we look at the New Testament and we say, we ourselves are sojourners and foreigners, but God is gracious to his people, isn't he? He brings us into rich community with one another. He takes sojourners and makes them a people. So we should be those who live according to this other world priority, shouldn't we? We should be those who identify as sojourners and exiles and who live in accordance with that. I want to do something different this morning that we don't typically do. As we talk about application, I want to talk about politics. That makes me my stomach churn even just thinking about saying that. I don't like to speak on politics, and admittedly, I really don't pay much attention to politics. 
Politics unavoidably traffics between the pragmatic and the principled, and it always pushes toward the pragmatic. It it always asks the question, uh, what works? What can we accomplish? And I'm kind of a what's right, what should we try to do kind of person. The other reason I don't like to speak about politics very often is, you might not realize this, but politics kind of becomes divisive every once in a while, doesn't it? Political discussions have the tendency to take items of secondary importance and to elevate them to primary importance. I remember a few years ago, I was walking through a church parking lot, and I'm walking through the parking lot, and I look at the bumper sticker that's on someone's car, and and the bumper sticker reads like this. It says, my dog is smarter than a Democrat. And it would be funny if it wasn't so heartbreaking. Imagine if you were someone who identified as a Democrat or you had loved ones who were Democrats. You realize this is not a place where you're welcome. And so what we did is we took something secondary, something tertiary, and we just elevated it. So that now our our common heritage in Christ is now of secondary importance. And we've elevated something of secondary importance to primary importance. So I don't intend to speak on anything political beyond what the Bible would, would call us to. You know, one of the things we do here at Gospel is we kind of settled into this from previous church experiences. We love to read through passages sequentially. So we're in Genesis 23. Well, last week we were in Genesis 22, and next week we'll be in Genesis 24. And so we'll tackle the biblical issues that are brought up. We'll tackle the issues of, of justice and righteousness. We'll tackle the issues of race as it's described through the lens of partiality as the New Testament describes. We'll tackle the issues of abortion when we talk about how God has made us all in his image. But we don't have any right to just pick up our own cause and start to talk about it. I don't intend to speak upon anything political other than what the text brings to us. And instead, I, I like to use politics as a mirror at times. I, I heard a, a man named... Uh, a man named Vody Bakum speak in 2008. It was right before the election. I think it was in September or someplace around there. And he said this. He said, we live in a representative democracy. And what that means is the candidates that are set in front of you in some ways act like a mirror. They show you who you are. There's a calculated approach to what candidate that's being set in front of you because they believe that you can resonate with the ideas and notions of those candidates. And we should use politics as a mirror. We should use our particular candidates to show us what our culture desires. Our political discourse in some way acts as a mirror to show us the spiritual and moral state of our country. See, the recognition is this morning that you and I, if we are in Christ, we have what a friend of mine recently called dual citizenship. That means that we have a citizenship in heaven. It's the way 
Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this citizenship that rises above any other allegiance that you might have. The citizenship that we have in heaven lies above your participation in a political party. The citizenship that we have rises above your participation in the Elks Club or whatever else thing you do. And so we have this citizenship that is in heaven, but we don't get to just kind of check out from the political process here. We also have a citizenship to this country, uh, the United States of America, and that citizenship gives us opportunity for the proper expression of our heavenly citizenship. Does that make sense? That you and I live out our faith in the polling box. That we prayerfully consider and pour over exactly who we're going to check in the upcoming election. See, Christian faith does not abdicate your political responsibility. Instead, it means approaching your political entanglements with an otherworldly hope in Jesus Christ. It means laying aside my potential ideas and understandings and, and saying, the gospel comes first. Mark Dever said it this way. I was listening to a podcast this week, and I love this. He said, give your political candidate your vote, but give Jesus your heart. And sometimes I'm afraid that we as Christians get that backwards. Well, maybe not backwards, but we get it all mixed up, don't we? We think about our political candidates as saviors and messiahs when there is one ruler of this world. There is one savior who will put an end to all injustice. There is one Christ who atones for your wrongs. And if I could, I would just like to plead with you that as we watch the melee that happened Tuesday night, that we would put our hope in the one who controls all things. And like Abraham, we would bank upon the promises of God rather than banking upon the half-hearted promises of some political candidate. And if you would, for a few minutes, I just want to guide us in the process of just assessing the state of our heart amidst the political politically caustic world that we live in right now. Can't we just acknowledge that? I watched the debates Tuesday for five minutes. I couldn't take any more. I couldn't take any more. I, I watch and I, I say, I'm tired. I'm weary with this. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you're, you're just exhausted by the process of it all. And it makes you just thirst for the presence of Christ. Let's, let's dig into that. Let's take this moment of political exhaustion and say, Jesus, we need you here. We need you to rule and reign in justice. We need you to bring about righteousness on the earth. We need you right here. 
Maybe we need to take advantage of this moment and dig into this thirst for the presence of God amongst his people. And so let me just give you some warning signs that your heart may be overly politicized, under-gospeled. Here's some signs that your heart needs recalibrated to the lordship of Jesus. Political events leave you anxious. Is that you? I was with a friend when the news of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death came across. And, and this friend, in, in all of his wisdom and capability, was anxious. This is going to split our country. And there was hand-wringing. There was nervousness. There was reading of blogs and everything else. Do the political events just leave you with this sense of anxiety? Number two, you cannot speak of political opponents with grace and charity. It doesn't matter who they are. A political opponent is made in the image of God and deserves the respect due the image of God, doesn't it? Don't they, I should say? And if we cannot speak of someone who stands on the other side of the aisle, as it were, with grace and charity and goodness and mercy and kindness, if we cannot exhibit the fruits of the Spirit when we talk about politics, we're doing it wrong. Third, you are incapable of adequately critiquing a political party or political stance. We must see that God's kingdom vision provides a third way in which we see the world, right? We don't just see the world through Democrat and Republican. There is a kingdom vision that God has for the world. He describes it in places like Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. He describes it in in places like Ezekiel 40 through 48. He describes it so many places throughout the scriptures. He gives us the sense of what his priority is. He he writes things like Micah chapter 6. He says, he's told you what he requires of you to love justice and to do righteousness, to love mercy, I should say. He tells us in Jeremiah 9 that he's a, a God who exercises loving kindness, justice, and compassion on the earth. He delights in these things. But we become so politicized that we entrench ourselves in one particular camp and we cannot adequately think through the issues as they're presented for us. So political events leave you anxious. You cannot speak of political opponents with grace. You cannot adequately critique a political party for you summarize the world's problems in political terms. You see the basic fundamental problem with the world through politics. And if we just got the right candidate in there, he would fix everything and straighten it right up. You know how broken that is? I do it too. I hang my hopes on some guy out there, and all the while there's Christ. You look to political candidates to usher in a new era of blessing. you look to some individual candidate that when they finally take office, they will do everything that we need done. 
In general, I found that political figures promise way more than they are capable of producing. You ever sense that? I remember once hearing a speaker, it was after the W. Bush years, and he said, we just, you know, evangelicals just got their guy for eight years, and what's changed? I mean, it was a pertinent question. We just got our guy for eight years, what's changed? See, we tend to speak of these political figures as messiahs. When so-and-so gets into office, everything's going to change. It's just like God speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. Time and time again, as I've been reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God is critiquing Israel for hanging their hopes on Egypt or hanging their hopes on Tyre or hanging their hopes on some other political kingdom when all the while they had God in their midst. See, what you and I might need right now in the midst of all of this politicization is we need a recalibration of our hearts away from the political mindedness and toward the trust in the God's purpose. You know, one of the things that might be best for America is for America to lose some of its freedoms. Let me pause and think that I'm saying this correctly because I don't want to get in trouble. It's been a saying amongst the church for years that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If we desire for the church to grow, if we desire to grow in our faithfulness, maybe we should welcome some level of persecution and difficulty. That was not in my notes. I need to abandon this line of thought right now before I get myself in trouble. See, we need to recalibrate our politically-minded heart. How do we do that? We consider the promises of God like Abraham. We need to recalibrate our our politically-minded heart to the promises of God that he has made toward us, that he promises us eternity in his presence. He promises us a 1,000-year reign where he would rule and reign over his people, where he would bring about justice and righteousness, that after his resurrection, that all of those that he has purchased with his own blood, he will collect together and he will be with his people for eternity. We need to bank upon that promise because it's the one that will come true. We need to consider the exalted Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over his people. Amen? Spent part of my day, or yesterday, just reading through Daniel 1 through 6. And here's a couple truths about the life of Daniel in these first six chapters is that, first of all, Daniel was in exile, wasn't he? He was someone who held to the lineage of God's promise in, uh, in Israel. But he was in a foreign land in Babylon. But the second thing is that Daniel was a very politically involved individual. In fact, he had dealings with three different kings. Uh, There was King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar and King Darius. He had interactions with all three of these kings throughout his life. But each of those interactions were different and varied as he interacted with them. Daniel's interactions with King Darius were filled with humility. After Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, he comes out, and the first words to, his, to the king are, O king, live forever. That might not be the first words that float off of my tongue if he just threw me into a lion's den, right? But when he interacts with King Belshazzar, he's confrontive and direct. 
Why? Because King Darius says it. He says he served God continually. That Daniel's faith pressed him into political interactions that were God first, man second. I wonder if we might put on the hope of the gospel in such a way that our politics would be guided by Christian thinking. That's what I'm advocating. I'm trying not to lean Republican or Democrat or left or right or middle or whatever else. I'm just trying to say, whatever your political opinion is, let it be rich in faith in Christ. I want to pray to that end. I sense that this period, October 4th through November, will be supercharged politically. And I want to pray that God guides and directs our hearts and keeps us filled with faith in his coming kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that this is exactly what you would accomplish. Allow our hearts and our minds to be saturated with hope in the gospel. Allow us to wait eagerly for your presence amongst your people for all eternity. And help us not to have any false hopes. Help us to fully engage in the political process and faithfulness to you. Help us not to be misguided by the claims of political candidates, but help us to be filled with faith in your goodness and in your mercy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.